Good evening, everybody. I'm Ann. Hi, Ann. And I'm a grateful member of the Al-Anon Fellowship. Uh, I want to thank the committee very much. Um, Pine Isle has always been very special to me. Um, I came probably the first time about uh, 14 years ago. Sorry, not in front of the microphone. Sorry. I, I was told I need to stand in front of the microphone. I forgot. Sorry. I'm here now. Did you hear who I am? I'm Ann. Okay. All right. Everybody can hear. Um, Pine Isle has a very special place in my heart, and every year uh, it means more and more to me. The first time I came was probably about 14 years ago, and I knew after coming to these rooms that this was a place I needed to be, that you had something that I wanted. I cried the entire weekend. I didn't spend the night. I drove up Friday night, went home, came back Saturday, went home, came back Sunday, and I cried all weekend long because you guys touched me. You had the pain that I had. You had recovery, and I had no idea what that was. I was clueless, but I wanted it. And at that time, we did not have AA participation. And to me, that is a gift that we have now in this program on the weekend, that we have AA participation. Because I know in many instances, Al-Anons have, have, you know, done this. We don't want the AAs to be here. But that's how I became compassionate and humble is surrounding me, myself, in programs that were specifically AA programs. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself, um, how I used to be, how it was during the crazies, and how it is now. Um, I was born into a family with um, two brothers, mother and father, and I was the baby. Sorry, get my notes over back here. Um, and a little bit of history before that, uh, my father came from a family of four children. He was a twin. He had an older sister and a younger sister. And of that family, there was only one person that did not drink, and that was his baby sister. My father was an alcoholic. His twin brother was an alcoholic, and his oldest sister was an alcoholic. My mother came from a family of seven children. There was only one person in that family that did not drink. Everybody else did. So <clears throat> when I was born into the family, I did not know for many years that um, alcoholism was a problem. Um, my father was um, what we'll call the, the known alcoholic in the family. He drank, but he, he would just drink and go to bed. Uh, he provided for his family, and my mother was the closet drinker, but she was the untreated Al-Anon as well, and she was the rager. And let me tell you, she raged. She raged from the time she got up until the time she went to bed. She was never happy with anything you did, and I seemed to be the target in the family. And um, it was interesting because um, growing up I had um, two brothers. Uh, the oldest brother, there was 10 years age difference between uh, himself and myself. And then I had a brother that was three and a half years older than me. Of course, the older brother was always off doing his thing and having a good time. And I never knew a lot about him because he died when I was 10 years old. He was killed in an automobile accident. He'd come home from leave from the service and was killed in an automobile accident. And my family changed at that point. Death has always been something that has been in my life that has been very difficult. Uh, but he died. And at that time, my mother decided that <clears throat> we would pack him away and put him in a box. And we would never talk about him again. There would never be any pictures out. It was just like he never existed. And I thought that's the way things were supposed to be. But I found out later that it could be different. Um, 
my brother that was next to me was my mentor. Uh, I don't know that I have ever seen a brother and sister that had been that close. We always did things together. Um, he would read to me. We lived in an old big house, and I can remember going to the library, and he would read Edgar Allan Poe. We'd turn off all the lights and sit in this long, dark hallway, and I'd shiver and shake. <laughs> but I loved it. It was attention, and it was positive attention, and we always did things together. When we got to high school, um, we would double date a lot of times because I wasn't allowed to date, so he said, well, you just tell Mom and Dad you're going with me, and we'll pick up your boyfriend on the way, and we'll go to the dance. So that was always good, and I was always safe with him, and he always looked out for me. If I dated anybody that was not up to his standards, he told me about it. And usually by then I had already figured out that that was probably not the person I needed to date. Um, I experimented a little with alcohol in high school and um, thought that, that was a good escape for me because I could get away from my mother, I could get away from the life that I was leading, which I did not like. Uh, I never had friends over. Um, I never knew what it was like to be comfortable in your own home. Um, I want to relate something back to, we were talking about the weather this afternoon in, in our uh, 4.30 meeting and uh, probably about 10 years ago I had a graphic artist that I was working with and he was just a delightful young man and he just had such a good perceptive on life and we were talking and it was raining and I said, oh how I hate rainy days, they brought back such bad memories because my mother always made you stay in your room and you couldn't do anything and you couldn't make any noise, you had to be quiet. He said, and he said, oh I love rainy days. He said, when I was little I could draw. He said, I could draw it all day long. So now when it rains, I don't think about the negative, I think about the positive. That's being open to what people can share with you and give you. Um, <clears throat> high school was fun, I had a great time. Uh, but I didn't know what I was going to do after high school. It's like, what do you do? I didn't have any desire to go to college. That was just not, I wasn't, um, I was probably a good C, C student. And, but my brother said, you've got to go to college. In fact, he pushed me to go away to college. And I said, no, I'm going to stay home. There was a local college in my hometown, and I said, I'll do that. So that's what I did. And I continued to party and have a good time. But when you live in a small town, um, everybody knows everybody, and everybody tells everybody what your kids are doing. So I did some things and, and got in trouble, and um, my father would always say, well, Ann, did you do this? Or I heard, I heard something. Were you involved with this? And, you know, I'd always lie and say, no, oh, no, I'd never do that. I'd never do that. Um, so I continued to drink. Um, I never did drugs. I didn't tried marijuana maybe once, but nothing more than that. But the alcohol was good. It was a good escape. It numbed me. Um, but I didn't like the way it made me felt the next day. So I, you know, would do it and then I wouldn't do it. Um, I met my first husband when I was in high in college. Um, he was on his way to Vietnam, and he was uh, stationed at a military base about 45 minutes from where I lived. And um, my best friend introduced us, and I thought he was the ticket out of my hometown. I thought, here's this guy, and I can I can fit him, and I did. Um, he went to Vietnam, and he came back. Well, he was a pilot, and he was a partier, and I mean, we drank all the time, every night, all weekend long. And you know, I got kind of tired of that. I got pregnant shortly after we were married, and I thought, you know, I can't do this. I'm going to have a child, and I can't do this. And so I wouldn't drink, but he would. But you know, it never dawned on me that there's an alcohol problem because he would function. I mean, he could get up and go fly in the morning, he could fly on the weekend, he could do anything he needed to do. 
Um, and we were going to school after I had my son, so we swapped babysitting. I'd go, he'd come, and we'd pass each other, and I'd go to school, and then he'd go to school at night too as well. And that went on for about a year and a half, and then he got stationed overseas. And I still had a year of college to finish, so I thought, well, I'll, he said, you're going to move back home and you're going to finish school. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go with him. So I thought that this would be another time that my mother and I could kind of um, work on our relationship. I had great hopes for that, but it didn't happen. But that was okay. Um, I learned some things um, about my family of origin again then, <clears throat> and my father's baby sister was extremely close to our family, and my mother had kind of accepted her. Uh, I don't know why. She was sweet. Um, she was kind. She was good to my brother and I. And she was like, wow, fun. Oh, man, she was so much fun. Um, we'd go stay with her, and she had just a small little house, and she didn't have a lot of money. She didn't have a water heater, so we'd have to boil water to take a bath, which I thought was kind of cool. You know, that was okay. But she was funny. She, she'd say, now, Ann, I never sleep under my bed. And I said, why? She said, I'm growing that man. I keep sending off for the Sears and Roebuck calendar. I'm going to get that man one day. They keep sending me clothes, but no man. So she had a great sense of humor, and she loved us. She was the first person that, other than my brother, that had loved me unconditionally. And she loved my mother, and she knew that my mother and father were in great pain, but she didn't know how to help them. Um, she told me after I moved back that my father would go to the cemetery every day and visit my brother's grave. But yet, he was not disgusted in the home. That's hard. That's hard. Um, because that was their child. And it should have been something that was discussed. <clears throat> well, we finally, I finally graduated from college and went to Europe to be with my husband. The drinking was still there. The going out with his friends was still there. And I had the son, and I stayed home and took care of him. And I remember one night sitting there thinking, you know, he's drinking every night. Why does he have to drink every single night? I said, he came in one night. I said, do you know you drink every single night? Uh, well, yeah. Uh, I said, well, why do you do that? And he said, well, I don't know. I do. And I said, well, do you think you could quit? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, he quit for about a week, and then he started drinking screwdrivers. So, you know, you just change one from the other. But it didn't, I did not see that this was a problem because he was a functioning alcoholic. He could go to work. He could carry on a life, what I thought was life, because, you see, I left an alcoholic family and I married an alcoholic family. So I had no comparisons. Um, we moved back to the States after being overseas and lived with his parents for a while. And I know now um, that his mother was God's gift to me. Um, she was like a mother to me. She was an encourager. She could never say anything bad about me. She always praised about how I raised my children and that you know, I was really good on the inside. She was the only person that I could actually disagree with and 30 minutes later we were fine. And I didn't experience that growing up so it was a, a real new experience. And <clears throat> my husband has also lost a um, brother when he was younger. And I remember the first time that we were there, uh, they started to talk about his brother at the kitchen table. We'd finished a meal, and they were just sitting there talking. And I was so uncomfortable because, you know, in my household, we don't talk about that. That's a no-no. I had to get up and leave. I mean, I just ran out of the room. 
And my husband came back to me and says, well, what's wrong? I said, I can't do this. You can't talk about Rudy. I, you know, we didn't talk about my brother. Why can't you talk about him? So they let me be me. And they loved me unconditionally. Um, they were not aware, and I still don't think to this day, his mother is deceased, but my mother-in-law is deceased, but I don't think his father realizes that he does have an alcohol problem. Um, we had a short stint in New Jersey uh, after living with his parents, and then we moved to Atlanta. And I thought everything was going to be great here. We were going to be settled. We weren't going to move anymore. Uh, we were going to be, you know, the Beaver family, right? Everything was going to be great. Uh, I had had Allison. I am Allison's mother, by the way. I think we forgot to say that, but I am. And um, I had Allison before we left to go to New Jersey. Um, my father passed away very suddenly, and I was 27 years old. Um, and that was another death and my mother proceeded to say we're not going to talk about him we're going to pack him up and put him away and I said no way I didn't have Al-Anon then but I knew that it was going to be different this time and I said if you don't want to talk about him you can leave the room and I didn't believe it came out of my mouth but it did because I wanted to heal I knew that I had to heal from that death and I had to talk about it and that that was important. <clears throat> so we set up our little household in Atlanta and uh, oh, I forgot a couple of things. My mother had cancer right before we were married and I thought I would be the, the martyr and I would take care of her. You have to realize we were like, you know, oil and vinegar. We just did not mix it at all. So I took out um, a semester of college to stay with her and nurse her back to health. And it was the worst decision I ever made. <laughs> but you know, it was one of those things I knew that I had to do and it was going to be okay. And I got through it. And I'm glad now that I did. And I think probably deep down she probably was glad that I was there anyway. Um, but um, when we moved back to Atlanta, uh, my husband went to law school and became an attorney. And I thought, well, we're going to have a great lifestyle. Things will be good. And, you know, we'll just be happily ever after. Things will be okay. Well, it didn't happen that way. He was still drinking. And he would still go out at night and drink. And, you know, I did not have a life because I was focused on him. Totally on him. I didn't know there was anything else. My kids were ignored. So I spent too much time focusing on him. I had that illusion of power that I could control him, which I did not have. Um, we started having a lot of problems, and um, we decided to divorce. The hardest thing was to tell my kids that that was going to happen, and I couldn't do it, because this was really his decision. I wanted to do therapy. I wanted to do something to get us better, to get us back together, that I felt that it was just you know, something we needed to do, that we weren't doing something we needed to do. <clears throat> but he told the kids. And Allison was very young at the time. Uh, and she had no concept of it. And my son just kind of went along for the ride. You know, it was okay. And I actually ended up filing for divorce. He did not. 
And I think if I had never filed, he probably would have been fine coming in and out of my life because we were divorced for a year and then we got back together again and we lived together for seven years and we never married. And it was our secret. He said, I don't want you to tell anybody that we're divorced. You tell them we're married. Oh. Being the good alumni, that's what I did. Um, and right towards the end of that last fiasco, my son started using. And I woke up one morning to him throwing up all over the house, bouncing off the walls. I get up to go see what's going on. I can't tell what's going on. I thought he was hallucinating. I had no idea. And my husband would not get out of the bed to help me. He would not do anything. So got all the lights on. I figured out what was going on. I knew I had to do something. I didn't know what to do. I had no experience dealing with alcoholism, much less a child that's doing it. So my husband said, well, I'm going to work. Take care of it. I'll see you later. That should have been a sign, but it was not a sign. It was like, okay, pull up the bootstraps. I'll do it again. I'll do whatever I have to do. So I called my pediatrician. We got him admitted and to a facility and uh, thought everything was going to be okay. That, you know, once they go to treatment, they're going to be okay. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. I was encouraged then to go to Al-Anon meetings, and I thought, okay, I'll try that. And, you know, I just couldn't hear anything. I just could not hear anything. I was in so much pain. You guys would laugh. You would hug. I saw you smiling, and I sat in the back, and I cried. I cried. I didn't know how to love that alcoholic in my life. <clears throat> I took him to meetings. Um, it didn't work. And he eventually left home at, uh, I think we figured out 19, I think, to join Marines. Um, there were a lot of incidences dealing with his alcoholism, and I had to let go with the mother. Uh, I felt that maybe being in the military might, you know, make him a man. Didn't happen. Uh, and then uh, by that time, my ex-husband and I had split again, and um, it was just Alice and I in the home. And I just focused on work. I was so numb from being divorced to being a single mother to having a son that had been in recovery that I didn't know anything else to do but work. It filled that void. So I learned 15 years later that I married work because that's all I knew how to do. I didn't have anybody. I didn't have any friends. When you deal with alcoholism, you don't have friends. You don't want anybody to know that secret because all of our friends drink. You know, why should I tell anybody else what's going on? And then Allison started her journey. And <clears throat> I had tried Al-Anon again when she went into treatment the first time. I still could not hear. I went to all kinds of meetings and I could not hear what you were trying to tell me. And then after she attempted to kill me, I decided then that it was time that I did something for myself. And I knew that these rooms, these rooms were the only place that you guys could understand what I had been through. Church didn't, work didn't, you know, people think you're crazy. 
<clears throat> we had some really tough moments. Uh, being a parent, a single parent was not easy. Um, her father uh, moved from the Atlanta area to, to North Carolina. And that evening when that happened, I called him. And I remember I didn't know what to do. And he said, well, are you alive? I said, well, I'm talking to you. Yeah, I'm alive. And I knew that she needed treatment. This, this, is, this is part of the disease of my disease, and that is the reacting part. You know? I knew that it was the alcoholism. I knew that it was not Allison. I knew that the police didn't need to be involved. That wasn't going to help her with her alcoholism, and that wasn't going to help me. She needed treatment. So, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm driving around 285 to take her to treatment. And the kid that was in there with her, I take him home because he's running away. He's been staying in my house a week, and I didn't even know he was there. Okay? <laughs> so I go knock on his parents' door at 2 in the morning, and here's your son, and, you know, I'm black and blue and green and purple, you know, and I look like, you know, death warmed over. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm okay, but you need to have your son. Okay? <laughs> it, it was. It's very, it's very humorous. And so I take her to treatment, and then on the way home, um, I stop at the hospital and I go have myself checked out. And you know, thank goodness we have caregivers in this world because they saw me walk through their doors and they just all embraced me. I mean, they knew something had happened. And later that evening they said, you know, we have to report this to the police. And I said, yeah, I know. And I was okay. I was okay with that. I had, I had leveled out enough and numbed out enough that I was okay to go home and take care of myself. What I worried about is, what in the world am I going to tell work? <laughs> you know, here I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the type of person, I'm extremely private, you know, you don't know anything about me, so to come in looking like that was something else. So I had to call my immediate boss, and all I could do was cry. And she knew, she knew something was there, and I told her, and she cried. Uh, so I, you know, made the lie up then. I, I had been in long enough to know in Al-Anon that you don't tell lies, but I had to make one up because I sure didn't want anybody to know about this one. So I told them the dog was in the back seat and we were in a car accident and he hit me in the face, so that was the best I could come up with. <laughs> and, you know, got some strange looks, but uh, it was okay and we got through it. Well, you know, it was the best I could do. I did have a dog and I had had... Uh, probably about four accidents while Allison was going in and out of treatment because I was so focused on her. The only place that I hadn't had a car accident, it was a, a front-end collision. Front collision. I had totaled one car. I had been hit on the left and the right side and the rear. So the front one was coming up, and it was a common joke at work. We don't ride with Ann. We just don't ride with her. Um, there were... Um, there was one therapist in Pacific and, and one other that both suggested that I go to Al-Anon. Uh, they suggested it for um, Allison's father and myself. And I thought, well, you know, maybe that's what I need. And it was an awareness then. I could hear some, but it was still hard and it was painful because you didn't know my secret. And I couldn't tell you my secret because I didn't think you'd like me, that you wouldn't accept me because you were looking at my outsides, not my insides. But I went, and I remember going back to a meeting, and I'm not going to say where, 
but uh, I had tried it that second time, and there was a gentleman there, and all he did that night that I was there was he just yelled and screamed, and I thought, oh my gosh, I can relate to that. I could feel like that sometimes, and can you really go to a meeting and do that? So I thought, well, I'll start there. Well, I decided that was probably not the place for me and I went to other meetings. Um, and I heard about sponsorship, and I thought, hmm, that sounds pretty interesting. So um, the lovely lady that read the concepts, Dana, was my first sponsor. And boy, Heidi, <laughs> she she was so sweet to me. She, I would call, and she would listen. And then she would tell me, well, you can only call at such and such time, and I can only talk this long. And I thought, how dare her? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm subjecting myself to this, and she can't listen to me? I ditched her. I never said bye. I just ditched her, you know? <laughs> She was on that amends list, and I knew she had moved out of town, and I thought, never, never. Well, what happened? She showed up my Friday night meeting, and I had to make amends. <laughs> but you know, it was lovely. It was a gift of the program because I had to be accountable for what I had done and what I had said. And you know, all she could say is, I love you. That's what these rooms teach us, is to accept people. We all have defects of character. not perfect. We're just progress. Not perfection. So then I decided, well, I really need to look for a sponsor. And I had been attending a lot of meetings, and I would watch different women, and I'd see which meetings they went to, and I'd go follow them and listen. Do they say anything different at other meetings? And and so I finally focused on Francis. And I can tell a funny story about us. The first time we met, we went to a NABA meeting, and then after that, we went to the little IHOP that was our yeah IHOP that was down the street to have. Um, Breakfast, dinner, I can't remember what it was, but anyway. And so I did my usual, you know, blah, of the secret, and cried. And she started laughing at me, and I thought, how dare her? <laughs> I've just given you all my dirty laundry, and you're laughing. And she just laughed, and she said, you have choices. Pardon me? You have choices. And I said, what do you mean I have choices? And she said, you can cry the rest of the day. You can cry on the way home. You can cry right now and stop, but you have choices. And I thought, holy cow, that was remarkable because I was such the victim. I could cry for days, <clears throat> but I didn't. I went home and I thought about that, and I thought, okay, that's cool. And she told me she wanted me to call her every day, and I said, okay. And I remember maybe third or fourth day, I can't remember exactly when, but I called her, and, you know, it was always, how you doing? Fine. Everything's fine. So she you knew, she knew that wasn't true. <laughs> and I got off the phone one day, and I said to myself, and I know it was my higher power doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, and it was that little feeling you get sometimes in your gut. I always say that's not my feeling. That's God's feeling. And my feeling said, you have to be honest. If you want to get better, you have to be honest. This program's about honesty. And I called her back, and I said, you know, everything isn't okay, and this is what's going on. Whew, what a relief to be honest and to trust her enough to do that. Because when I came in, there was no one that I trusted. No one. It's been a wonderful relationship. Um, she's gotten me through many trials and tribulations, a lot with my daughter. Uh, the DUI, I remember I called, I said, I can't do anything. She said, you don't have to. You don't have to do anything. You mean I don't have to do anything? No, you don't have to do anything. You just have to love her. And I said, well, I do that already. And I set boundaries for that. I said, it is your problem. It is not mine. And you will have to take care of it. 
she was going to college then. She had to get a ride to and from college. She had to do some community service. And I said, you know, I'm not, no, that's your responsibility. And it was hard to say no. But I remember Allison saying, do you still love me? That was her main concern. Do you still love me? And it was. I did. I've always said she's been my, my uh, diamond in the rough. And she's blossomed now. But it wasn't always that easy. Oh, we used to butt heads. And I always used to think that there's a saying in one of the books that hurt people hurt people. And that's what my mother did. My mother hurt me. And I, in turn, hurt my family. And I wanted to break that cycle. But I didn't know how. Because you can't do it by yourself if you don't have the program. You may know all of that, but you just don't know how to do it. You know, we say when we grow up and we have kids, we're going to do it different than our parents. And we don't because our role models. So Al-Anon has helped me to change that aspect. Um, we've done some therapy together. When we hit hard spots, we do some therapy together. And that's always a blessing to me because it's real. It's honest. And we usually both need it. Um, my son has not even thought about recovery since then. He knows that I'm in the program, and he knows that Allison's in the program. And I got a call last year sometime. He said, Mom, he said, were your ears burning? I said, no. He said, I was talking about you today. There was a man coming in and he had some problems with his kids and I said, you know, I told him he ought to think about Alan and I thought, well, he's getting some of the message. Maybe not all of it, but some of it. So that was great. Um, Allison went to live with her father after she got out of long-term treatment and that was truly a God thing that she got into long-term treatment because I had been trying to get her in this facility for a long time, and there was a waiting list. It was an all-girls facility. I knew she didn't need to be with the guys, so she needed to be, because they had co-eds. I said, uh-uh, it's got to be all-girls. And so I had tried, and I prayed about it. And I just knew that there was a reason to hold out for that. And, you know, the week that she was supposed to go in, she decided to kind of leave for a little bit. I just didn't answer the phone, and I didn't answer the messages, and I didn't call them back. So I thought, God, you just got to take care of this one. So she was able to get in. Uh, there was a requirement when she went to treatment that uh, her father and I both attend Al-Anon. And that was the first time that he had ever attended Al-Anon. He was there a very short period, and I believe at that time that it was purely a manipulation so that the focus would not be on his alcoholism, that it would be on the family dynamics, which was fine. Um, I, I knew that from the beginning, but I thought if he got anything, he got a little bit. And I know he has, because he's, he's used some of that with both of us, and that's okay. Um, he loves her. Uh, he loves Joey. And I think in his heart, he still loves me uh, for who I am, and I'm the mother of his children. And there was a point, uh, see, he's been married 10 years. He remarried. And right before he married, he came by the house to get Allison, and they had forgotten something, and they came back. And that day, I had been talking to another member of uh, Al-Anon, and I had told her that I had this emotion going on, and I couldn't figure out what it was. So we talked for a long time, and I figured out what it was. It was okay for him to be happy. And it was okay I forgave him for everything that he did, and it was important that he be happy. And he came back in to get the stuff, and I said that, and he was just like, why does he cheat? So Allison gets to where they're going, and she says, what did you say to Dad? And I said, nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, there has to be forgiveness now on. If there's not forgiveness, she will never grow. Uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't still hurt. 
because I always thought marriage was for life. I really thought it was, but it wasn't. I know that without my ex-husband, I would have never had the mother-in-law that I had. She was a great gift. She loved me unconditionally. Um, so that was that was a chapter. And shortly after that, um, another friend in the program had encouraged me to um, go to church with her. And I said, I don't want to do that. I don't. I don't like God. He doesn't. He still doesn't meet my boat. You know, he's not there for me. And so she persistently said, I'll go with you if you come with me. And I did. Um, I was raised in the church and I believed in God, but because of all those deaths, you know, all those deaths, I didn't think there was a God. When I was uh, 40, my mother passed away. We had kind of, kind of, just a little bit, brushed the surface of forgiveness, but not much. The best that she could do and the best that I could do, and that was okay. And then at the age of 43, my brother that I was so close to was killed in a plane crash. Allison was, had just gone to treatment, to long-term treatment, and I thought, how in the world am I going to do this? <clears throat> my ex-husband had kind of tried to rekindle things because she was in treatment, so he didn't want to look bad. So he was there, and um, he helped me through that process. He was a gift, and I know now God provided that because the night that happened, he called me. He says, what are you doing? I said, well, I was wrapping Christmas presents because it was right before Christmas, and we were having secret Santa at work, and so I thought I'd wrap everything. And I know God, now God provided that, and he came over and he helped me. It was very difficult for him. At um, that point, I thought there was no God because God took everybody away I loved. The ex-husband was gone, my brother was gone, my mother was gone, my father was gone, my daughter was gone, and my son was gone. What was I going to do? He had a plan. <laughs> he had an awesome plan, but it took two years. I always say now, when you mourn, there is no time limit. It is what it is. It may go on the rest of your life. It took me two years. I would go to work, I could function at work, but I couldn't do anything else. I'd drive to work and I'd cry and I'd cry at lunch and I'd come home and I'd cry. I'd do nothing on the weekend but cry. I had a dog. I had a black lab. And that dog got me through it. That was my God in skin at that time because he could get me out of the house. I realized that the only person I talked to on the weekend is if I went to the grocery store or I went somewhere else. Otherwise, nobody. And I was an Alamon, but I didn't, I didn't know how to tell you guys. I didn't know how. <clears throat> and finally one day I said, you know, I'm sick and tired of this. It's got to change. So it did. But I had to do the changing. And I had to ask God. I said, God, if you will take it away, I will do whatever you want me to do. Within two days, it was gone. I had peace and I had serenity because I was willing to give up my will and do what God wants me to do. I was willing. I came in these rooms and I found friends here. And I didn't take them hostage. It's funny, isn't it? It is. It's funny. And you know, I was sitting here uh, Friday night, and I was thinking about that. I, JP, I was listening to you, but I was thinking about friends, and I, and I realized then that that's kind of what my mother had done with her kids. She had kind of held us hostage that, because that's all she knew how to do. She didn't know how to do it differently. 
but I had friends in this program, and I learned that they could be very close, and I could tell them anything and everything. And I could call them, or they could call me, and they'd know exactly what was going on. If I was down, they could pick it up just by how I said hello. Nobody had ever done that before. Nobody ever cared that much. And I kept coming to meetings. And I had decided um, shortly after uh, I got a sponsor that I would do 90 meetings in 90 days. AA does it. Why can't Al-Anons do it, right? And it's so funny because <laughs> I decided that, and I had already gone for maybe a week, maybe a week and a half, and, and I told Frances, I said, I'm going to 90 meetings in 90 days. She said, that's great. I decided to do that, too. But you know what she told me? She said I had to incorporate AA meetings. I didn't want to do that. Did not want to do that. I said, okay. Well, 8111 was very close to work, and I would pop in there at lunch, and, you know, you can kind of come and go in AA meetings. Al-Anon's like to sit here and be here the whole time, but AA can kind of get up and go. So I felt real comfortable, you know. I could leave late and, you know, come in, whatever. But I heard things that I hadn't heard before. But probably the most moving uh, AA meeting was close to Napa. It wasn't at Napa. There's a church that's on the other side of the road, up on the hill. And my sponsor told me, you need to go to that meeting. So she went with me. Huge meeting, absolutely huge. And I sat down, and all of a sudden, this young man stood up and started sharing. He had been in treatment with my son, and he was doing okay. And at the end, when they gathered around in the circle, they said, Let's pause for a moment for those people that are still struggling out there. Oh, man, I lost it. But you know what I, what I got there? I got the compassion that I needed, and I got the hope. The ho you never lose hope for that alcoholic. You never lose hope. That was a turning point also, because then I knew I'm here for a reason. I'm doing that 90 and 90 for something. And people looked at me like I was crazy. I said, I don't have anything else to do. I can go to work, but I don't have anything to do at home. So it was good. It was very good for me. Um, shortly after that, um, I don't remember what had happened with Allison, but there was something going on, and I don't remember what it was. But I was sitting at work one day, and um, I got a call, and I got upset. And I said, I can't do this. I'm not going to let her sabotage me this time. I'm going to change my thinking. I'm going to be happy. And we talk about that. But you've got to practice it. You can talk all you want, but until you put it into action, it never happens. So I did it. And it worked. And my biggest obsessions at the time, my dishwasher wasn't working, so I'd end up washing dishes at night. And I'd stand in front of the sink, and I'd start obsessing. i said, no, I'm washing this cup. And I would stand there, and I would say, I'm washing this cup, I'm washing this cup, because I'm in the moment, and I have to do this. Because if I'm not, I'm going out there, and I just get crazy when I go out there. And it worked. You told me these things worked. You told me miracles would happen, and they happened. I had um, a septic field in my backyard that went, I had no money, and I didn't have a credit card, so where am I going to get this money from? I'm not going to ask my ex-husband, and you know everybody else is dead, so who are you going to ask, right? <laughs> so I just said, okay, I'll just ignore it, right? Well, <clears throat> I had a great aunt that had died four or five years ago before that, and we weren't really close, but they never had any children. And one day I went to the mailbox, and here was this check to the penny, to the very penny of what my septic seal was. God thing. There are no coincidences. There just aren't any. 
And then there's a, there's a real special time in my life. Uh, it started about 10 years ago when I started to going to church with my friends. I had decided, that was funny because I can remember my daughter telling me, she was in college, and I said, what do you think about me dating? And she looked at me and she says, well, one, it won't work because you won't look anybody in the eyes. And I said, oh, my gosh, she's right. I was so mad. She said, you won't even look at a man. I said, yeah, well, she said, you think about it. And I said, okay, you're right. So, anyway. But not really that I wanted to, but I wanted to think I wanted to do that. You guys gave me courage to think outside the box because I had lived in that little box that was so comforting. And... Uh, at a gal at work and she told me she was making this list of you know what she was looking for and I said okay I can do that so you know you know what was on the top right not an alcoholic <laughs> or if he's an alcoholic he'll be in recovery so I went down my list and you know I tucked it away and I, did, I don't think I even told Francis about it but I thought okay that's, that's fine that's about all I could do and so I just let things go and at that time I was getting healthy I had friends I was doing things on the weekend I was having fun I was being me well, God had a different plan. He introduced this man in my life. He's not here tonight. He's home sick in the bed. And um, we knew each other for two years before we ever even started dating. And I was comfortable with him. I trusted him. He was honest with me. He encouraged me. He was real. And our lives had passed many times during our lifetime that I was in Atlanta, and we started talking about it. He did some work on my house, and I had forgotten about him. God has a plan. He's out there. If we just let him work his work. Um, and things progressed, and I would call Frances when we started dating, and I'd call her every weekend to give her the update. I said, he's going to leave. I just know he is. He's just going to leave me. I mean, that was my pattern. You know, the ex would leave, so, you know, this guy's going to do the same thing. Yeah. And she just laughed, that silly little laugh that she has. And I say, Francis, please don't laugh. This is real. I'm scared to death. <laughs> and you know what she told me? She said, be like the rock in the stream and just let the water flow. I thought, I cannot do that. <laughs> but I did. And it was wonderful. And we got married. And it was so lovely. I don't know when I've been that happy. It was just beautiful. He's the love of my life. I respect him. I trust him. He's a gift from God. Uh, he's just so special. Um, he's been a father to my daughter uh, in many ways and a father to my son. Uh, and they don't understand him because he is so opposite them than my first husband. He's caring and he's loving. And he cares and he loves them. And he shows them how much he cares and loves me. Um, Working the steps. You can't be a tourist. You can't come in and out of meetings. You've got to do the work. You've got to have a sponsor. And being a sponsee and then being a sponsor is huge. I've learned so much from the people that I sponsor. I love them. And you know, I tell them when they help me because they need to know that. We need encouragement. We need that willingness. You guys taught me the willingness to just be there, to show up and hear those meetings and reach out. I love newcomers because I remember how difficult that was. And I always tell them, I'm so proud of you for walking through that door because it's so difficult. And I know you're in pain, but please come back. 
and I like to ask people how they're doing, and I don't accept fine. That is not an answer. My daughter taught me that one. <laughs> There's another word for fine, but we won't go there. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Some people know, and I like that because I want to know how you feel. I have a little chart that somebody gave me one time, and it's got feeling words on it. And if I can't get it, then I need to give it to them and say, pick a word. Because when I came in, all I could do was cry and rage. I didn't know what that was all about. I had no clue. Working the steps, I learned those. I learned the feelings. The most important one is that I have a higher power, whom I choose to call God. If it weren't for him, I would not be here. Because there have been two points in my life, once when I was 10 and once right before Allison went into treatment the last time, that I thought, this is not where I want to be. I don't want to be in this world. I want the pain to go away and stay. And I had just been doing a meeting on a Friday night, and I'm driving home. I said, well, it's Friday night. I could pull in the garage. I can leave the car running, and nobody will know till Monday. I had just been doing a meeting. And it was like, oh, what's it here? I'm not sick. I have recovery. There is something, and you have to reach out. And that's what I did. This is not a one-man show. I am not the Lone Ranger. I am not God. I am here because we are here. It is a we program. And I know that I have to talk to somebody in Elamon every day. Because if I don't, I get squirrely. We don't say that in the program, but I practice that with the people that I sponsor because if you don't, you can't get in touch with your feelings. You can hide them real easy. I did it. I know. Okay. I have one thing I'd like to read, and there's something that I've been practicing um, this year, and I'm going to continue it. Um, there was a, an AA speaker several years ago that um, had something that I liked, and, and I practiced that, and it was uh, what gets me into trouble is simply how I think. It's an acronym. Simply how I think. Okay? <laughs> All right. Not to be confused with think, which I like also. Uh, but I have a, a little one that I'm using now, and uh, it's LAS. Letting go, attitude, and forgiveness. And that's what I'm doing this year. I'm trying to look at things different. Uh, I have that attitude of gratitude. The forgiveness is not always there. But I have some people in my life, and I'm working on that forgiveness part because it's about me. It's not about them. And I've heard that this weekend, and I needed to hear it again because um, I can't do this by myself. I cannot. I need your help, but more importantly, I need God's help. Um, and I want to read one thing. Uh, this was given to me many years ago by someone in one of my groups. I'm sure he's not around anymore. But it was at one of these meetings, and it was so, so very precious. And I think of him. He had such a soft heart, and he was so encouraging. It's on page 19. Each and, one, each and every one of you helped me in countless ways from a simple thing like a handshake, a hug, or a smile that generally said, I'm glad to see you, to patiently listening to me when I whined and cried, or when you told me what I needed to hear when it was necessary. 
You cared and you shared, oh so willingly, the simple secrets of this program. You showed me how to surrender, then grow slowly from a firm foundation of humility and honesty one day at a time. You showed me that my higher power, who I call God, is my partner in my walk through life. If I share with him all my hopes, joys, fears, and sorrows. You taught me how to pray with honesty and what to pray for. His will for us and the power to carry that out. You showed me time and time again that prayers are answered and miracles do happen every day. You told me that I always get what I need when I need it, not necessarily things I think I want when I want them. You taught me how to handle resentment and self-pity, the two emotions that were destroying me. You told me gratitude changes your attitude. You taught me how to achieve inner peace and serenity by a faithful, trusting, accepting of my higher power's will. Especially in the middle of a crisis, you never let me forget that this is a life or death situation. But paradoxically, you show me how to laugh and have fun. I have one other miracle to share with you. I'm 57 years old, and this summer I had a gift from God, one that I had no clue about. My ex-husband had contacted me and said there was a lady looking for me, and she lived in Texas, and her name was blah, blah, blah. And I said, fine. I figured, you know, who this could be. I searched the memory ranks. Nobody from college, nobody from high school came up, and I thought, well, she's probably some genealogy person looking for something, right? Been to church that day. We're driving down the interstate, and I give this lady a call, and she said, I hope you're sitting down. I said, I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm self-contained right now. <laughs> she had a real sweet voice. And she said, was your father so-and-so? And I said, yes. And she said, well, you're my sister. She's 20 years older than I am. We talked, and I got to meet her two weeks ago. And the white elephant that was in my room was, I couldn't tell her that my father was an alcoholic. But my, my lovely daughter talked to her son and she found out that there's alcoholism in their family. So I was able to share that with her. But you guys, you just have to stick around for the miracles. She's 78 years old, and I'm 57. And you know, it doesn't matter what happened in the past. She's a sister. She's another person in my life. She and her husband had no siblings. I'm the only aunt that her children have. It's a gift. It's a gift, and it's wonderful. And today, I'm happy. I'm so happy. And I'm joyous, and I'm free. And I hope someday that you'll be there too. Thank you.